I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the New Testament to the book of Colossians chapter number three this morning. Colossians chapter three. Of necessity, because our scripture text this morning speaks of sin, I must preach a message about sin. And I don't like sermons on sin. I don't like to hear them. I don't like to preach them. I I like feel-good sermons. I like sermons about the love of God. I like sermons that teach us that we are more than conquerors or that we can do all things through Christ. I like motivational messages that, that build consensus and tickle the ear, sermons that are funny and sermons that are interesting and short, of course, but... But in that we are committed to the whole counsel of God, we have no recourse but to accept what is before us here in the Holy Word of God, for it is profitable to us. You may remember from Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, we were taught how we ought to respond to our risen life in Christ. Since we have been raised with Christ, we are to seek the things that are above, we are to set our minds on the things above. And I've summarized it in this way for us this morning there on the top of your notes. Positionally, the believer has died and been raised with Christ. But practically, we remain trapped in our human flesh. Paul said, who will deliver me from this body of death? Sin's penalty has been removed, but sin's power is still real in this life, in this flesh, as we struggle with sin on a daily basis. Therefore, we must mortify the sins of our flesh. And so this morning from Colossians 3, verses 5 through 8, I prepared a message titled, The Mortification of Sin. And while maybe not a popular message, an important message from God's word, let me pray, and then we will will continue. God in heaven, thank you for the moments we've spent reflecting on and remembering the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, we thank you so much for for the once-for-all sacrifice and for all that it means for us today. God, now as we come to read your holy word and we read of the the wickedness of our sin, I pray that your spirit would confront us and convict us. May we live in light of our death and resurrection with Christ. May we put to death the deeds of the flesh. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Your Bibles are open before you. Colossians chapter 3, verse number 5. Therefore... Because of your risen life in Christ, verses 1 through 4, therefore, verse 5, put to death your members on the earth. In the words of the old King James Version, mortify your members. Now, what is this saying? Over the centuries, people have misunderstood this and have inflicted great bodily injury to themselves, even severing body parts. However, Paul has... has, already assured us that there is no benefit to that neglect of the body. Up in chapter 2, verse 23, he made it clear there's no value uh, against the indulgence of the flesh. He's not advocating the ascetic mutilation of the body parts, but rather he's using a figure of speech known as metonymy. And when he speaks of slaying body parts or severing members of our body, he's referring to the sins associated with those members. 
And those sins are listed for us here in verse number five. Verse five, therefore put to death your members. Mortify the flesh, which, are, which is on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul is telling us to mortify or to slay or to kill the human earthly impulses and the appetites of our flesh. And so I've, I've arranged my outline this morning by asking two questions. Number one, you see it there in your notes. What are we to do? Number two, why are we to do this? Our study next week will answer the how question, how. But this morning, what, what and, and why? First, number one, what are we to do? We are to, letter A, put to death the perversions of the flesh. There are five perversions that are listed in verse number five. And Paul presents them in reverse order from the obvious evil act the fornication or the immorality to the underlying motive where that sin began at the end of verse 5, idolatry. The evil act is, is the manifested sin. That's number one. The, the basic motive or the source of that manifested sin is number five, covetousness or greed, which is idolatry. And so I've, I've given you an arrow there in your notes indicating the beginning and the culmination of the sin. And Paul is presenting this backwards. From the outward manifestation will be number one to the inward cravings that spring out of the heart, number, number five. And I think you'll understand this as we unpack it. The manifestation of the sin is number one, it's fornication or immorality, your English Bible may read. The Greek word is porneia, from which we get our English word pornography refers to sexual sin, and the term originally referred to prostitution, however, it eventually broadened to include many forms of immorality. Paul wrote scathing indictments to the Corinthian church because of their porneia, or their immorality, or their fornication. Paul's letter to the Galatians describes porneia, or immorality, or fornication as a deed of the flesh. Galatians 5, verse number 19 as opposed to the fruit of the Spirit. To the Ephesians, Paul said that porneia was not a proper behavior for the believer. In 1 Thessalonians 4.3, he wrote, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that is porneia. And while it's unnecessary for me to be graphic this morning and describe to you all the forms of immorality that exist, simply know this, whether you are a youth or whether you are an adult, whether a man or a woman, married or unmarried, immorality is not compatible with your risen life in Christ. It is not compatible with the character of God. It is not in harmony with the teaching of the scripture. We are to kill it, slay it, mortify it, not tolerate or accommodate it. In Colossians 3 verse 5, if it's telling us anything, is telling us to, to radically destroy the immorality in our lives. And somebody better say amen. But if you say amen, be careful lest you are one who says amen without putting to death the deeds of the flesh, the sin of fornication or immorality. It's easy to say amen when the preacher preaches against sin. But we need to go thermonuclear war on this. And that's not easy. Now, there's a powerful engine that drives this sin of fornication or immorality. 
there in verse number five. And, and so working backwards, number two would be uncleanness or impurity. And it's there in verse number five. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, that was number one, uncleanness or impurity, number two. And we're backing up or working down from the fruit, number one, we're go- working back to the root will be number five. The Greek word here is a catharsis. Catharsis means to cleanse or purify. A catharsis, there's an alpha privative, there's an A there in the front of the word which negates its meaning. Let me explain it in this way. We all know what it means to muse. To muse means to think or to ponder or to concentrate or to be pensive. If we add the alpha privative before the word muse, we get a muse. What does that mean? A muse means to not think. If you are amused, you are not thinking. If you go to an amusement park, it is a not thinking park, you see. And the same is true with, with moral and amoral. Amoral, that alpha privative, it means there's no morality. So the word uncleanness or impurity, it might be in your copy of the English Bible, it literally means not cleansing, not purifying. It refers to the pollution of evil thoughts and intentions of the inner man in our mind and in our heart. And for this reason, Jesus said, everyone who looks after a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. For within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, that's porneia, thefts, murders, adulteries. And so that evil behavior, number one, fornication or immorality, begins with evil thoughts, this impurity or this uncleanness, and therefore the battle against sin, specifically the battle against sexual immorality, begins in the mind, which is why Philippians 4.8 is, is so important. Whatever is true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, if there's anything that is virtuous or anything praiseworthy, think on these things. And if it sounds to you like Paul is trying to achieve mind control, you're right. We talked about this last week. Because of your death and resurrection with Jesus Christ, think in these ways. We need to renew our minds and adopt the mind of Christ, set our minds on things above. But let's back up even further now from number one, number two, even deeper. Where does this uncleanness or this impurity of mind come from? Where does this ah catharsis come from? And that is going to be from verse number five, passion and evil desire. Passion and evil desire. And I give you numbers three and four together because the distinction is not that great. Passion uh, appears to maybe be the physical appetite. Evil desire seems to be the the, the mental appetite of the very same vice. And to the Stoics, these words were used to describe the person who was dominated by his appetites. Today we might call it compulsion or addiction. And then if we back up even further, go down a little bit deeper, we come to the root of the sin of fornication or immorality. And that's going to be number five, covetousness or Greed, as your Bible may read there in verse number five. And this is the insatiable desire to have other than what one has, 
to have what is forbidden. Bible commentator William Barclay says this, It is therefore a sin with a very wide range. If it is the desire for money, it leads to theft. If it is the desire for prestige, it leads to selfish ambition. If it is the desire for power, it leads to sadistic tyranny. If it is the desire for a person, in this case, it leads to sexual sin. In James 1 describes it this way, each of us is tempted when we are drawn away by our own desires and enticed. Then when the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And so the, the bottom line, the root cause of what we do is because of what we desire rather than what God desires. And in essence, it's making ourselves more important than God. And it amounts to nothing less than idolatry. Look at the end of verse number five. The end of verse number five, which is idolatry. I'd like you to take your, your sermon notes there, your outline, and turn it sideways. And along that arrow, write the word idolatry. Idolatry. Unless we destroy the perverse idolatry of immorality in our lives, we are nothing more than idolaters. And folks, that has been a problem for the people of God since the beginning. So what are we to do? We are to destroy, we are to kill, put to death these sins. If you turn your notes over, you can follow as I read that first paragraph by the Puritan author Stephen Sharnock. And he says this, All sin is found in a secret atheism. All the wicked inclinations in the heart are sparks from this latent fire. The language of every one of these is this. I would be a Lord to myself and I would not have a God superior to me. Every sin is a kind of cursing God in the heart and aim at the destruction of the being of God. Not actually, but virtually. A man in every sin aims to set up his own will as his rule and his own glory as the end of his actions against the will and glory of God. And when you know, would, would you know it that all through the scripture, this is what happens. This immorality is always associated with idolatry. But because of our risen life with Christ, we ought to slay this sin. We ought to mortify the flesh, put to death the deeds of the body. We ought to war against these perversions. And folks, I would, I would warn us that there are a few things that are more devastating to a family, to a marriage, to a home, to a church, to a culture, than one's spiritual, and, and to one's spiritual walk, than, than what's listed here in Colossians 3, verse number 5. The devastation is tremendous. So verse number five, therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, colon, and then they are listed there. But a second thing we must do, and uh, what are we to do, number one, if you look at verse eight, but now you yourselves are to, here we go, put off all of these, and there's another colon, verse eight, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. And, and so I would offer you letter B here. What are, what are we to do? Letter B is put off the poisons of the flesh. First, the perversions of the flesh in verse 5. Now the poisons of the flesh in verse number 8. And these sins are not sexual, but they're social. These are the sins that we commit against many other people. And in this case, Paul has reversed the order of the first list, where in this case now he begins with the source motive, 
and he's going to work down progressively to the ultimate evil act in number five. And so we can move quickly through these as, as you follow. The first, of course, would be anger. These are found in verse number eight. Anger is that deep internal smolder, smoldering resentment and bitterness. And we do not become angry when we're provoked. We are angry. And then when we are provoked, it's revealed that we have an angry spirit. One doesn't get angry. One is angry at the roots, all right? So let's progress then, working in this case to, to wrath. Wrath refers to the sudden outburst of our anger. The Greeks likened it to a straw fire, which would quickly flare up, but then also as quickly go away. And anger and wrath are closely related as the the churning, boiling anger that often lies just before the surface and then gives gives, gives rise to the eruptions of wrath. Paul then says malice. What is malice? Malice is a general term for evil. It it refers to the harm that's done by, by hateful speech. We might know it better as number four, slander. It's literally the word blasphemy. When used in relation to God, it's translated blasphemy. When used in relation to people, as it is here, it's translated slander. And James admonishes us from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. But my brethren, these things ought not to be so. And and that slander is the defamation of another's character. And then, number five, there's filthy language is what the end of verse number Eight reads in, in my Bible, and the, the term refers to obscene, derogatory speech intended to hurt and wound someone. These aren't sexual sins, these are social sins, and these are respectable sins, and we move through them so quickly, maybe they're not as bad as the perversions of verse 5. But I would say to you, whether the perversions of verse number 5 or whether the poisons of verse number 8, these things will devastate a family, a home, a marriage, a church, a culture. They will devastate your spiritual lives. In fact, these are more devastating because these are more common and more respectable among us. And of all the categories of sin and wickedness that the Apostle Paul could have cited here, it's interesting to note that he chose these two lists. He doesn't mention murder or stealing or drunkenness. Could it be that these sins and the motives behind them embody most of what we struggle with? Something to think about. So this is the what we are to do. We are to put to death the perversions of the flesh, and the poisons of the flesh. Okay. But then why? Why? And that's number two. Why are we to do this? And I would point you to verse number six. We skipped it. Verse six. Because. Because answers the why question, right? Because of these things... The wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Why are we to do this? Why are we to mortify the deeds of the flesh? Because sin produces God's judgment. Romans 1 verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. 
John 3.36 says, Because the unbeliever does not have faith in Christ, the wrath of God abides on him. There's no doubt that believers will experience the judgment of God. However, believers have been delivered from the wrath to come will experience no wrath, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, verse number 1. So, so what gives? The wrath of God is his just reaction to sin. And positionally, God's wrath was placed upon the person of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. But also, in his righteous justice, God cannot tolerate sin. Therefore, we who have died with Christ, been raised with Christ, we should not participate in these behaviors and, and thoughts that endure, induce God's wrath. For after we've been delivered from God's wrath, God still reacts to sin and scourges every son whom he receives. And so while we may not be eternally damned because of these things, we will certainly be judged from a just God and the discipline of, of God because sin produces God's judgment. And it may just be necessary for us to think about this for a moment. We've celebrated the forgiveness that we have in Jesus' death on the cross, but know that these are the things that demand God's judgments. There's no more miserable life than living the life of a sinning Christian. The necessary discipline or chastisement that is due us because of God's judgment. But there's a second, there's a second reason why we are to mortify the deeds or the sins of the flesh. And that is because sin was part of our journey. Because sin was part of our journey and if you look with me at verse number seven, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. And think back to your condition before salvation. Paul wrote to the, to the Corinthians after a grocery list of sins. He said, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the spirit of God. So think back to your condition before salvation, and why would anyone who has been set free want to return to the shackles of sin? And why would anyone who has been made rich in Christ return to the bankruptcy of their sin? And how shall we who have died to sin live in it any longer? And how shall we who have been raised with Christ live, with it, live in it any longer? These are rhetorical questions. Sin was part of our journey back in the day, once upon a time. And why would we not mortify or slay these things? Turn your notes over with me again. As I read that second paragraph from Charles Spurgeon, he says, Christian, what hast thou to do with sin? Hath it not cost thee enough already? Burnt child, wilt thou play with the fire? What? When thou hast already been between the jaws of the lion, wilt thou step a second time into his den? Hast thou not had enough of the old serpent? Did he not poison all thy veins once, and wilt thou play upon the hole of the asp and put thy hand upon the cockatrice's den a second time? He says, again there on the screen now, Oh, be not so mad. 
so foolish? Did sin ever yield thee real pleasure? Didst thou find solid satisfaction in it? If so, go back to thy old old drudgery and wear the chain again if it delight thee. But inasmuch as sin did never give thee what it promised to bestow, but deluded thee with lies, be not a second time snared by the old fowler. Be free, and let the remembrance of thy ancient bondage forbid thee to enter the nets again. Why should we mortify the sins of our flesh? Because sin was part of our previous life. But like the Apostle Paul to the Romans Our old self was crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. It was the the great baseball evangelist of 100 years ago, Billy Sunday, perhaps you've read of him. He said this regarding sin. He said, I'm against it. I'm against sin. I'll kick it as long as I have a foot. I'll fight it as long as I have a fist. I'll butt it as long as I have a head. I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth. And when I'm old, and when I'm fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum it till I go home to glory. And it goes home to perdition. Folks, this isn't rocket science. The positional reality is we have died and been raised with Christ. We have been set free from sin. But the practical reality is we live in this body of death, this flesh. And it wars against the spirit. So what do we do? Thermonuclear war. Fighting against. Destroying, slaying, killing, mortifying the deeds of the flesh. Next week return and we'll answer the question, how? Let's pray. Lord. God in heaven above, I I pray that you would help us by your spirit to live in light of our resurrection with Jesus Christ. God, I know that among us there is great war that's being waged. Lord, at times we feel like we're winning that war, but many times we feel like we're losing that war, the battle against the flesh. So God, in Jesus' name and the power of his blood, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning under the sound of my voice that you would empower, equip them, enable them, give them victory, Lord, so that we can walk humbly with you. For I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.